Matthew chapter 4 is where our text is found this morning, turning there. We'll read the first 11 verses together and we'll skim the latter at the end of the, at the, end of the message. Matthew writing this account of Jesus and his temptation says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Throughout my ministry, I've read a lot of books, different books about churches and different books from ministers and talking about their experience, but one book has really stuck with me, and I've gone back and read it two or three times, and maybe you've read the same book. It's the initial book that uh, was written by Jim Cimbala called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, accounting his early days at Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I have mentioned it in, in bits and pieces through the years in sermons, uh, but um, if you haven't read this book, you really need to get it. As we're talking about prayer and fasting, this is really a wonderful book that talks about how prayer and fasting changed a church, changed lives, and uh, has, a create, has allowed the Holy Spirit to create a wonderful ministry there in Brooklyn, New York. But Jim Cimbala was called to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, I believe in the early 1970s, probably around 1970. His very first Sunday there, in this broken down, hardly unheated church that looked like it had been abandoned if you walked by, his first collection that Sunday morning was $85 in the morning offering. There were about six or seven people who were attending. They had a monthly mortgage of $232 that was due, and that was not having it taken into account the utilities for the drafty building and knowing that there wouldn't be enough money left over to pay his salary for the week. He soon found out that his, one of the first things that he found out after being there for a few weeks was that his head usher was stealing from the Sunday morning offerings. And as he was preaching each Sunday morning there in those early months of being there, prostitutes, transvestites, and drug addicts would come in and wander around during his sermons just trying to get in out of the cold. He became very despondent. He became very discouraged to the point that he became physically ill for about six weeks. He was offered by a family member an opportunity to go away to Florida for a, for a week and to enjoy the sunshine and to get away from the stresses and struggles in ministry. And one day on a fishing boat in Florida, God spoke to him and said, Go back and teach the people to pray, and you will never have a building large enough to contain the crowds 
I will send in response. He realized this, that God is attracted to weakness. And there at his weakest point, at his most broken point, God spoke to him and gave him a vision and a plan to go back and to plant in his church and to take them to a new place. And wow, did they ever. Ministries began to spring up. His wife, who had no musical training, began to instruct the choir there and to lead the choir there and became the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, which most of us who've been in church for a long time, we understand the significance of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir and how great the music and, and the ministry is that they have there. Their, uh, their ministries began to grow. They began to flourish. They were able to move into a new building in another part of Brooklyn and up to three services every Sunday and a prayer ministry that is unrivaled in any church. But soon after that, something happened. In the midst of all those things that God began to doing, a crisis erupted in Jim Cimbala's own home as his daughter began to rebel. His daughter, who was uh, probably around 19, 20 years old at this time, began to rebel against all the things that she had grown up believing about God. And she went and she left their home, got into an abusive relationship with a man, and soon became a drug addict. Jim Cimbala accounts in the book here about how many Sunday mornings that he would show up to preach three sermons on Sunday after having been out all night long on the streets of Brooklyn looking for his daughter and trying to find his daughter who had now become a drug addict and who was close to death. Can you imagine the, the suffering that he was going through standing behind a pulpit with all these things going on in his mind? So he and his wife were tempted to do this. In the midst of everything that was going on there at Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, the successes of the ministry, the people who were being won to Christ, all the things that were happening, they became so broken that they prayed about leaving New York City altogether, the New York City area, because they said that the darkness had consumed them so much that they just wanted to leave and go somewhere different and be in a different situation. But one Tuesday night, while he was preaching from Acts chapter 4 about the church praying bold prayers and bold prayers that shook the foundations of where they were, a lady sent him a note by an usher and said that they should stop and pray for his daughter Chrissy. Now here's what Jim thought. Jim thought that he had kept this from his congregation and that nobody really knew what was going on. Now, how many of you realize that in, a, in, a, in any church setting you can't keep anything from everybody else? So whether Jim wanted everybody to know or not, people began to know. And so they, there on that Tuesday night, they met together, they gathered around, and they prayed for his daughter Chrissy to be delivered from drug addiction and to find her way back to the will of God. Two days later, Jim Simbola was in the upstairs part of his apartment shaving, and he heard his wife begin to weep. And she ran up the stairs and said, Chrissy's home. And there as he went down the stairs in his kitchen, there was his daughter on her knees weeping before God and saying, I am so sorry and I want to come home. Today, she's a pastor's wife in the Midwest with three children and has ministries of her own that are growing. 
What if Jim Simbla had given in to the temptation to leave New York, to leave the ministry that was going on there, and to just walk away and give in? Because that's what the devil wanted him to do there at that moment, was just to concede, walk away, and give in. And what would have happened to his daughter? This morning at Brooklyn, Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, including last night, there were probably seven services this weekend. Thousands of people go there. They have a prayer ministry with prayer bands that pray 24 hours around the clock. There's never a, an hour that someone is not praying there at that church. I myself go online and submit prayer requests there quite often and leave them there knowing that sometime during the day somebody's going to pray over those prayer ministries. Pray over my prayer needs. Now, last week I issued a challenge to our church to, to look at three different areas of ministry and to pray about what God can do in those three areas of ministry and to see and to submit ourselves to fasting and praying over those ministries and continue praying over those ministries and to know that God has given us a vision to do these things. Now, what's the reality of that? How many of you think that the devil is just going to sit back, let us pray, and let us go and move forward with those things, and he's just going to sit somewhere and say, man, look at what they're doing, isn't that wonderful? Anybody think that way? What do you think that Satan's plan is for us right now? Extreme warfare. His plan for us right now is to take us into an extreme warfare because we're praying about those things. If you prayed Tuesday, and if you know that God, that God is uh, hearing those prayers, but know that the thing that we can expect now is to be tempted to stop and to be tempted to let these things just go for a little while and then quit. I want to use Jesus this morning as an example of why we shouldn't and how we get through these temptations individually and as a church body and how we move forward knowing that God has something great for, for our community through our ministries and through our prayers, something that will glorify Him in a, in a wonderful way, in a new way that we probably have never seen before. Let's look at the temptation of Jesus first of all. Now, here's what we know when we are tempted. Satan's goal in temptation is always to put our future at stake. When you are tempted, know this. The devil is tempting you because there is something in your future that he may see you accomplishing for God, and he wants immediately to stop that and to hinder that and to keep you from being a part of God's plan for that situation. Jesus told us this in John 10, 10. How did he describe Satan? He said that he comes to kill, steal, and destroy you and I. And that's his goal. To kill us, to kill our reputation, to kill our ministries, uh, to kill us in, in any way that we can from being affected, to destroy our, our, to destroy our dreams for God, to destroy the ministries that we may have going on, and to destroy and to steal our joy that we have in Jesus and to steal us and rob us of the rewards and benefits that we have for following Jesus and being obedient. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempted Eve. There in the Garden of Eden, his goal that moment when he was tempting Eve was this. He wanted to corrupt God's creation. God created a perfect creation, a perfect environment, and he had set man in a perfect situation Satan came along and he wanted nothing more 
than to corrupt that creation of God's. There we see the fall of man. Sin enters into the situation. Disease comes as a part. Pollution, corruption, and ultimately the death of mankind comes. Now here's a man I want to introduce to you this morning. And his name is Satan. Now we hear the name Satan. We hear the term the devil. We hear those things. And we have become a, a, a group of people, a church in, 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 in most of our context today who puts him on the back burner and thinks, ah, it's not really that important. I'm in a relationship with Jesus and I'm not going to worry about what Satan has to do. Let me tell you, that's exactly what he wants you to think this morning. Satan is a being who this morning benefits more by people not believing in him and thinking that he's not real, that he's just symbolic, and that he's just an image that we've created to, uh, to go along with the things that are wrong in this world. He loves that notion that people have created there. But he's constantly fighting against those who follow and obey God. There are those today who believe that a personal devil doesn't exist, but they have no adequate explanation of the existence and presence of sin and evil in the world and don't account for it. But Satan's temptations are real. And Satan's always trying to get us to live his way or our way instead of God's way. Here's his voice in our heads. Don't call. Don't ask. Don't depend on God to try to do great things. You'll get along fine if you just rely on your own cleverness and energy. How many of us are, are that way sometimes? We are going through situations. We're going through struggles and trials and temptations and tribulations. And we are going through those things. And in our own, in, in our own selves, we say, well, I can get through this on my own. I can take care of this on my own. Is that how God wants us to go through anything? Not, is that absolutely not. Last week, we, we covered the scripture that Paul said, pray about everything. Pray, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Anything is everything, and everything is anything. Jesus Christ is one day going to rule over this, all of this creation. But here in this account that we have, Satan tries to force his hand and get him to declare his kingship early. Now here is the most important part about these scriptures that we're reading this morning. Is this. If you, if you tune me out after this, I want you to hear this. If Jesus Christ had given in to any of these temptations, then his mission on earth to die for our sins and give us the opportunity to have eternal life would have been lost there at that moment. If Jesus had given in to any one of these temptations, the very reason that he came to be our substitute for our sins would have been lost there at that moment. And he knew that. So when a temptation seems especially strong to us, when we think we can rationalize giving in to that temptation, we need to consider whether Satan may be trying to block God's purpose for our life or for someone else's life. We talked about this in Sunday school. Nothing that we do, nothing that we do is inconsequential to everybody else. Our actions and what we do have consequences not only for us, but for, but for others. Our family, our loved ones, the people in our community. Our actions and our consequences and how we deal with these things. He's always going to tempt you and the consequence is always greater than what it seems there at the moment. So, 
His goal was to put our future at stake. And then we need to know this, that temptation itself is not sin. It's not sin to be tempted. There's not one person sitting in this room who's not going to be tempted. The temptation by the devil here shows us this. Jesus was human. Jesus came and he, in the incarnation, he's fully God, but he took on the flesh of humanity so that he could identify with us in every single way. He, it gives Jesus the opportunity here to reaffirm God's plan for ministry. It also gives us an example to follow when, when we're tempted. Jesus' temptation is an important demonstration of what? That he's sinless. That he lived his whole complete life here on earth without sin. He faced temptation, but he, never, he did not give in. Now here's another point I want to make. You may feel dirty after temptation. You may be tempted and not give in, and you may feel dirty about that temptation. Remember, the temptation itself is not sin. The sin is giving in and being disobedient to God. So we need to remember this and turn away from God. We're going to be tempted sometimes, not give in to that temptation, but Satan wants us to feel dirty just because we were tempted. Don't allow him to do that. James 4, 7, James said this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will flee from you with his temptation and his, his challenge to try to make you feel dirty. And then we know this, most of our temptation is going to come, what? When we are at our highest high? Or when we are where? When we are most vulnerable. Most of our temptation is going to come when we're most vulnerable. Think about that in your own personal life. When are the times that you have been most tempted? Now notice this. Satan didn't tempt Jesus while he was sitting in the temple or while he was teaching in the temple. Satan didn't tempt Jesus while he was at his baptism. Where did he choose to tempt him? In the wilderness. Now what is Jesus going through? How long has he fasted here? Let me hear you. Thank you. How long has he fasted? I couldn't hear you. 40 days. I'll continue on now. Now, think about this. How do you think Jesus felt after 40 days of not eating? And, not, and now Jesus did a fast beyond what we did the other day. Jesus did a fast, a complete fast. What we believe from scholars in, in researching these texts is that he fasted completely from food and water. All right? Now, people debate that. But think about that. Even if he just fasted from food for 40 days and 40 nights, how was he feeling right now? Somebody tell me, how do you think Jesus felt, choir? Hungry. Hungry. He's hungry. He's tired. He's alone. And more than that, he's vulnerable. Do you know what, you know what time is the most vulnerable for pastors? you know what time is the most vulnerable for a pastor to be tempted? I believe this from all my years in ministry is this, Sunday evenings. Sunday evenings. I've preached a couple of sermons, 
it's emotionally draining, it's physically draining, sometimes it's spiritually draining. And then most of the time on Sunday evenings, I'm away from everyone else. I go and I'm alone. And guess who shows up? Satan. And you know what Satan reminds me of? There could have been, they could have been an altar full of people here. There could have been 25 people saved. Three people uh, uh, give their life to missions in the Congo. And, and somebody come up and write a check uh, for a million dollars to pay every debt that we'll ever have. You know what the devil will remind me of? The one person who was asleep during my sermon. And he'll say, boy, you just really stink. And what he wants to say, he wants to pull me down so that on Monday morning I don't come in here and get energized and want to come in and, and write sermons to do. He wants me to come in here Monday morning and say, well, there's no point in doing this. Nobody's listening. So-and-so fell asleep. And I have no idea what happened in so-and-so's life that week to make them go to sleep. I've told y'all, um, there, there's a family here that calls me Somonex. They say that I'm the cure for insomnia. Sometimes Bryson has yelled down from upstairs and said, Daddy, I can't sleep. Will you preach? But the devil tempts us when we're most vulnerable. When we are physically and emotionally in stress, that's when he comes to us. When we're lonely. We live in a lonely society. We may be plugged in through our phones and through our laptops and through our, our, our video games and all these things, but we still live in the most lonely society in the world. Don't let loneliness dictate your relationships. It's better sometimes to be alone than to be with people who would tempt you and take you into sin. When we're tired, when we're making big decisions, when we have financial problems, when we're faced with all kind of uncertainties, that's when he's going to come and he's going to attack us during those times. The Apostle Paul knew a lot about this and he said this in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. He said, my grace, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying there is when I am at my weakest, it gives me opportunity to understand that that's when Christ is at his strongest. And that Christ in my very weakness wants to come in and give me the strength to avoid temptation. Most of our temptation is going to come when we're vulnerable, but then also He likes to tempt us through our strengths. He likes to tempt us when we are prideful and when we're, everything seems to be going our way and everything seems to be clicking for us and we think, oh, what a big deal we are. Who comes in at that moment to kick our feet out from under us and to hurt our testimony is Satan. So here's what we need to understand is that we have to be on guard every moment of every day. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's seeking someone to devour in this congregation this morning. And he's seeking to do that through temptation. But we see here the power of Scripture during temptation and how Jesus did this. Jesus used Scripture to overcome three different temptations. Now Jesus is able to resist all the devil's temptations not just because he knew Scripture, but what did he do with Scripture? 
He obeyed that scripture. Now, what do we see with Satan? What does Satan know about scripture? Satan knows scripture. He quotes scripture here. But what's the difference? Does he obey scripture? No. So here's what we see. He's memorized it, but he doesn't obey it. When we are tempted to violate God's will, we are to follow Jesus' example and use Scripture. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father spoke and said, what? This is my beloved Son. He made a declaration there that said, this is without doubt my beloved Son. Now, what does, what does Satan do here? He picks up with that thought. He knows that what God has said, and here's what he says to Jesus. If, if you are the Son of God. The difference in is and if there is tremendously significant. God said this is. Satan said if you are. How many of you have gone through the, the, the situation where you are sitting and the devil tries to fill your mind and heart with doubt about who you are in Christ Jesus. Any of you ever suffered that situation? The devil trying to tell you that you are not in Christ Jesus, that you're not a child of God, that you, you just, you know, there's, there's no point, there's no hope for you. You need to quit teaching Sunday school. You need to leave the choir. You're just a wretch like anyone else. Brother Ed Kugler, who was our interim pastor, was 82 years old at the time. I was sitting in his living room where Tyler and Whitney live now on Daly Street, and he crooked his little finger, his, his index finger at me, and he said, Michael, I'm 82 years old, and the devil sits here every day and tries to tell me that I'm not a Christian. He said, you know what I do with him? I take him back to the cross. I take him back to the cross, and I tell him about what Jesus did for me, and then I take him to that point to where I gave my heart to him and repented of my sins. And he said, you know what I do just to put the icing on the cake? I take him on over to Revelation and show him where he's going. <laughs> he said, guess where he goes? He leaves me alone. Now look at this. Satan is going to offer Jesus the whole world. And we know this from John's writing. In John 1.1, 1, 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. Jesus knows who he is in God's economy and in God's plan. But Satan tempts Jesus' humanity. He, Satan, he, he tempts his humanity to try to get him to sin. Now here's the key to this. Jesus had to be in the flesh. Jesus had to take on the flesh of man so that he could empathize with the temptations that we're going to go through. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest, someone who's sitting in a temple, we don't have that, someone who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus could have stayed in heaven and in his deity, but he chose to come to earth and take on the flesh of man so that every single aspect of your life and everything that you go through, he would be able to understand when you come to him in prayer. There's nothing that you come to him in prayer with that he has not felt in his humanity while he was on this earth. Remember that. So let's look at these three temptations real quickly. First of all, we see the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the flesh is this. 
It's any sinful desire or interest that interferes with our relationship with God and fellow Christians. Look at verses 3 and 4. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's hungry and he's weak. He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I, I experienced 12 hours um, Tuesday, 6 to 6. And here's the foolish thing that I did. I cooked during that time. I was, um, I, you know, we got caught in that snowstorm a few weeks ago. And I was, I was just going to show James Spann that I was going to be prepared no matter what happened. So during my fast, I'm cooking. I'm cooking all kind of different things. And I got all kind of different things going on. And I'm going to tell you, about 5 o'clock, I really had to dig in praying. And Donna had already told me, do not give in. You make it 12 whole hours. Don't you? You're the leader. You have to make it 12 hours fasting. So I'm hearing her voice in my head. I'm smelling this chili and, and all the things that I'm cooking, this, uh, these chicken dishes and all those things. And, and, and I really dig in there about 5 o'clock and start praying. But I remember as I'm praying this. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Think about his weakness there, his hunger. Think about that. He could have used his divine power to satisfy his natural desire for food. All he had to do was speak and turn these stones into bread. But Jesus had gone into the wilderness to what? He'd gone to fast, not to eat. And he is experiencing how we would think or feel in this situation. He's fully God and he's capable of this act. But he has to know how we would feel. Hunger is a human desire. There's not a thing in this world wrong with, wrong with hunger. It's a natural desire that keeps us alive. Now, it's wrong if we overeat. It's wrong if we continuously eat bad and eat the wrong things. It does our body harm. But there's nothing wrong with a, a hunger as a human desire. Now, we may, be, we may be tempted to satisfy a normal, perfectly normal desire in a wrong way or at the wrong time. I, I normally, at this point, point to my wedding band, but my, you can see I'm not wearing it this morning. Everything is good. Don't worry about it. It was just got to a point to where it had got warped and it was cutting the circulation off to my knuckle down. And I, I thought, well, it would be better to take it off than lose the finger. So I'm getting a new one. Orna? Okay. I thought I was. You said for better or for worse. Richer or poor, remember that. But where, what, what would that wedding band symbolize? It symbolizes that I am in a relationship. I am one man in a relationship with one woman and that I am going to be in that relationship with her until death do us part. Now what does our society say? That doesn't matter. That's, that's not what's in anymore. That's not what is accepted anymore. What is accepted is sex before marriage is, is just fine. You can indulge in that. I've gone through this in student ministry and trying to teach this and, and trying to bring this point home and hear all kind of different arguments and things about how that's not, you know, uh, but, but God's Word says it over and over. And what it says is anything sex before marriage or sex outside of the marriage that we're in, we are 
killing ourselves inside spiritually, not only doing our physical body harm. We're trying to satisfy God-given desire in the wrong way before the time that God has given us. Many of our desires are normal. Many of our desires are good. But God wants us to satisfy them in the right way at the right time. Now Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times in these exchanges with Satan. And that's important. Because he is identifying himself with the children of Israel who wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Now, what happened to the children of Israel? They failed miserably. Jesus is not going to fail. Because the children of Israel are under an old covenant. And that old covenant depended upon man's effort and it was flawed. The new covenant under Jesus is perfection because Jesus does all the work and gives all the effort. So, he doesn't give in to this temptation. And then the second temptation we see is the lust of the eyes. It's any sinful desire or interest that comes through what we see and leads us to violate God's law. Read verses 5 through 7 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, the temple is the religious center of Jerusalem. It's the religious center, of not just of Jerusalem, but of the whole Jewish nation. And it's the place where people would be gathered who are looking for a Messiah and expecting the Messiah to arrive there. It's the tallest building in Jerusalem. And here's what the devil does. Take yourself up here, throw yourself down, and prove to these people through the miraculous intervention of God that you're the Messiah. Now remember that Jesus is in his humanity so he could understand the dread that most people would feel at such a height. Imagine yourself being up here, up here on the uh, steeple, standing there with your, half your foot on and half your foot off. I, I'd pass out. I'd be gone. Jesus understood at that moment how we would feel. The devil, uh, the devil tries to get him to presume this reliance on God and he even quotes Psalm 91.1 to do this, to try to get Jesus to sin. Now here, listen to this. The devil quotes the word of God, misinterprets it, omits a clause, and tries to trip the Son of God by the word of God. I saw something this, this about two weeks ago that just blew my mind. From one of the most popular pastors in America at an Elevation Church in North Carolina. And he made this statement from the pulpit. He said, if we want to change our hearts, we have to change our habits. And I read that, and I looked at that, and I went back and read it again. And I thought, that's one of the most blasphemous statements that I've ever heard. Is that if I change, if I change, my, if I change my habits, then I have the power to change my heart. Let me tell you something. I tried to change my habits for years in the power of my own strength. And how many times did I fail? Every single time. Do you know when my habits changed? My habits changed when I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He changed my heart, and then my habits followed suit and changed after that. Now here's what's scary about this, this here, is what He said, is there are thousands of people 
who listen to the music, get caught up in the music, but then get sucked into the horrible doctrine that is behind the music that, that is being preached there. You better know Scripture. You better know Scripture. The people around the temple would see this. If Jesus does this, they would see this as proof that Jesus was the Messiah if they see him sailing down from the sky. It would be seen as a sign from heaven based on popular messianic expectation. The devil's telling Jesus here, God has provided you a spiritual parachute through the angels. You don't have anything to worry about. Just step off and prove to everybody down there who you are. God is not our cosmic magician in the sky wanting to, to do great and, 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 and open things for us to see to prove that he's God. We should be seeking faith over signs. Jesus told the Pharisees that you seek a sign, and Jesus said what you really need is faith in Jesus. The devil uses scripture here to try to convince Jesus to sin. Now, there may be someone who presents to you an attractive or convincing reason for you to do something that you know is wrong. They may be even find a Bible verse that seems to support their viewpoint. I had a group of teenagers one time in New Orleans. We were in a park there in New Orleans, and our kids uh, were there, and they were, they were singing, and they were witnessing, and they did a drama there in the park. And I had a man walk up to me and pull me to the side, and he pulled me over. And he, was, he told me, he used a scripture, he took a scripture out of Matthew to tell me why I was doing wrong in having these kids out here making a public display for Christ. Now, he was very convincing, and he used scripture. And I think it was Megan Ingram, Megan Ingram Morrow now, that was standing near me and got to hear me dress him down, taking scripture and using scripture to to go against what he was saying and to prove him wrong and to get him to leave and go on. But we better know Scripture the way that Jesus did because the devil was using Scripture here and I can tell you that there are people who will take a verse out of context and try to get you to do things that go against the will of God. You better study Scripture carefully. There's, there's a, I've heard just here in Piedmont, I've heard people say in a Bible study, that we ought to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit that we would know the voice of the Holy Spirit if he told us to do something contrary to Scripture. Now think about that. We should be in so in tune with the Holy Spirit that it, we would know the voice of the Holy Spirit if he told us to do something contrary to Scripture. Who wrote Scripture? Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit going to tell me to do something that's contrary to Scripture? Absolutely not. You better know your Bible. You better know Scripture. Understanding Scripture and what the whole Bible says will help us to recognize errors of interpretation when people take verses out of context and twist them to say what they want them to say. And then finally, we look at this, and it's the pride in our lifestyle. There's a sense of arrogance based on wealth or rank that violates a Christ-like spirit of humility. Verses 8 through 10 say this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now these scriptures can be confusing right here. 
Did the devil really have the power to give Jesus the nations of the world? What he's doing here, he's basing this offer on his temporary control and free reign over the earth because of humanity's sinfulness. And here's what the temptation is. The temptation here is for Jesus to take the world as a political ruler right then. To take the world as a political ruler and not go to the cross and carry out his plan to save the world from his sins. Satan is trying to distort Jesus' perspective to get him to focus on worldly power and not on God's plan. The devil offered him the whole world. The whole world if he would only kneel down and worship him. How does the devil offer us the world now? How are the ways that the devil offers us the world? Enticing us with materialism. Enticing us to think that what we have is not good enough and that we need something a little bit better and that what we have is not as good as what other people may have or what we're doing in as good as other people may have. So we go in debt to, to uh, impress those people who don't like us and we don't like them, but we want to show them that we can be, have just as much as they have. And well, materialism or power, we want more, we want, we want greater. But we can resist temptation the same way Jesus did. When we find ourselves craving something the world offers, we can quote Jesus' word to the devil, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. If we're worshiping, we're serving, and if we're serving, we're worshiping. And we need to be busy making sure that we're doing both. Now what happens as a result of Jesus not giving in to these temptations? Two things quickly. Look at verse number 11. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Angels came and probably fed him, and gave him water, and ministered to his physical needs, and got him back up on his feet, and got him back steadily, so that he could do what? Fulfill God's mission to go into ministry. Now, you may not have physically an angel come down from heaven to support you, during, but, but how many of you can say that during your times of crisis, during your times of temptation, tribulation, and trials, how many of you can say that it was a Sunday school member, a church member, another Christian at work, who God sent to come along beside you and help you get through a horrible time in your life? Probably every one of us who's been a Christian for any length of time can go back to a moment in time to where the people of God came while we were in these situations and ministered to us just as the angels ministered to Jesus. And in verse 17, we see this about Jesus as he fulfills the scriptures. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what if? Verse number 17, what if going back to verse number 5 through verse number 10, what if, or verse number 3 through verse number 10, what if Jesus had given in to one of those temptations? What if he had given in to his flesh and sinned? Where would you be this morning? What hope would you have in your sins this morning? You'd have none. But Jesus did not give in to temptation. Jesus obeyed, not only knew the Scripture, but He obeyed the Scripture 
And as a result, he went into ministry saying that we should repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was able some years later to go to a cross at Calvary and to die for your sins and for you to have life eternal. Now, I can promise you this morning that you don't have anything that big ahead of you. You don't have a cross and you don't have man's redemption ahead of you. But I can promise you this, every person here who is a believer in Christ, who's following Christ, who has repented of their sins, God has something in your future for you to do for Him, to glorify Him, and to lead other people to Jesus. And I can also guarantee you this, Satan is going to come along and he's going to tempt you to try to kill, steal, and destroy what God has in plan for your future. But this morning there's hope. There's hope in Jesus and the, and the example that he gave us and how he overcame temptation and how he was able to stand and how he makes it available for you and I to be able to stand this morning. So as we look at that example this morning, know that it's going to come to you. It may come to some of you as you're driving home today. It may come at work tomorrow. It may come somewhere in the, in the near future, but it's going to come. You may be 15, you may be 45, you may be 85. Doesn't make any difference, it's going to come. How are you going to deal with it? We have an example this morning of how Jesus dealt with it and how he wants us to deal with it also. So as we continue on this morning, first of all, you need to know Jesus as your Savior. Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this morning I'm telling you to repent because Jesus is coming someday soon. And you need to be ready. What does that mean? It means that you ask for forgiveness of your sins and you tell God that you're going to turn away permanently from those sins and you're going to follow him for the rest of your life. If you need to do that this morning, these altars are open. I'll be here. Seth will be here. One of us will be wonder. We would love nothing more than to share with you how to know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to join this church in fellowship through membership. Whatever it is you need to do. Maybe you just need to come and pray for someone. These altars are open. We had three challenges before us. And don't you think that we're not going to be challenged by the enemy. Would you stand? Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for giving us your word. And I pray that we would be continuous students of your word. And know scripture and know that when people are perverting it, twisting it, and feeding us a lie. Lord, I pray that in our temptations that we would look to you for our strength. And that we would use your example from Matthew chapter 4 to help us through. Father, this morning we ask these things in Jesus' name. And we give you the glory for all that you do. Amen.